Nowhere is this more true than Jackson, Mississippi, where the levels of distrust, racial animus, economic inequality, poor governance, partisan politicking, and just general neglect of everyday people is on display. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for politically eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. And today we have a little bit of a different show for you. I'm coming to you from the New York studio, and Ravi is down in Jackson, Mississippi, where he is covering a water shortage crisis that's been pretty devastating. So let's just go straight to that, Ravi. What are you seeing on the ground there? Well, about 180,000 residents of the city of Jackson are without potable water. And the background here is there's this water treatment plant called the Obi Curtis Water water treatment plant, which serves the city, the entire city. And it had been relying on backup pumps for the past month. And there was a flooding of the Pearl River, which is the river that cuts through Jackson, that destroyed the backup pumps, rendering the city without water. And you know, for people who are new listeners, I ran a bunch of schools here, charter schools. We started the first charter school in Mississippi, and now there are four here. So I've spent a lot of time here. I used to split my time between Jackson and Nashville. And so I was actually down in, in Pennsylvania for a reporting trip that I'll talk about later in this episode. But but I hopped on a plane and came down here just to see what was going on and also to support our teachers and families. And what I'm seeing down here, Ricky, are conditions that should not be present anywhere and are shockingly present in the United States. I would never think that I would see some of the things I'm seeing down here right now. Yeah, just reading from afar, it's terrible what's going on. It's the water so bad that you can't drink it, you can't bathe in it, you can't brush your teeth, you couldn't feed a pet with it if you wanted to. And so how are you seeing that people are getting by down there? What's what's the situation like? I think like it's kind of a slow motion Katrina in a way that this has been going on for a long time. So I started the, the morning in South Jackson, which is where actually I started my first school, which is not only one of the poorest sections of Jackson, which is a very poor city to begin with, but is also at the very end of the water line. So the, the, the pumping facility is in North Jackson and in South Jackson at New Horizon Congregation, which is where I, I met uh, Bishop Ronnie Crudup this morning. That's at the very end of the line. So these are the people who have had water for, have been without water for the longest and are going to have to wait the longest. And I'll start with them because I think these are the people who have been suffering the most. I would also say that there are people in North Jackson who are completely flooded out of their homes, which is a different kind of hardship that we're seeing around the city. But down in South Jackson, people there have been dealing with this for a long time. You know, I remember back in 2016, we were handing out bottled water. There's just these repeated boil water notices that the city has been dealing with because the infrastructure is like 100 years old. It's a city that's incredibly impoverished, has major fiscal issues that we'll get into. And when I was talking to Ronnie in South Jackson, he was basically saying that the people there have been resigned to poor water quality for a while and that they're just actually drinking it. Uh, they had been drinking it when they actually had actual water, regardless of the quality of it, because people are just getting by. Uh, and what was crazy is in the same breath, he was talking about how the city, this is not just a question of water pressure and getting access to clean water, but there's a sewage crisis, not just a water availability crisis. The sewage is even, is even worse than I heard. So what's going on with the sewers? Well, the water is being pumped into the river. We don't have really a, a, a way to filter it right now. Oh, so the sewage is going into the river? A lot of sewage is going right into the river. The wastewater system is, 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 is torn up. But people don't see that part of it. And is that also right by the, uh, what's it called, the same 
Uh, no, actually, it's right down here off, off Savannah Street in South Jackson. I think there's two of them, but there's one of them right here. And there's been an issue not having enough money to do that. So there's actually been a back and forth between the city and the Environmental Protection Agency, and the city actually is dumping raw sewage into the waterways. And in some cases, these are the very waterways that are infiltrating the water system uh, because of these floods. So it's, this is a really dangerous situation. Yeah, and it's amazing doing research ahead of this to hear that it's this is like kind of a decades-long scenario. And already in uh, a couple years ago, the EPA described the water situation there as, quote, an imminent and substantial endangerment to the health of persons served by the system. And yet there's this continued incompetence, poor administration, a lack of staff at the treatment facility. There's no utilities manager, insufficient operators, the operators that they do have just cycle through and quit frequently. They couldn't present any of their finances or any clarity. There's a lack of monitoring and maintenance that's been ongoing. And so it seems like the alarm bells have been going off for so long. But now the the city is faced with potentially an $800 million to $1 billion fix for this scenario. But what's your take, Ravi, on on how much government incompetence is at play here? There is a lot. And the numbers you're citing are more money than the entire state of Mississippi, from what I understand, spends on water treatment. So we're talking about money that the yeah. state does not have right now, or at least it would be hard to find. And so it's hard not to see federal intervention. There's a lot of discussions right now about whether the federal government's going to step in. Obviously, the federal government stepped in recently to address the Flint crisis. A lot of people, I've been saying this for years, haven't been paying attention to what's happening in Jackson because this has been pretty severe. Just to put some numbers to this. In 2012, the U.S. EPA, the Department of Justice, and the Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality announced a plan to address the sewage issue, which is obviously super related to this. That was in 2012. Ten years later, this is this past May, right before this crisis went down, uh, there was a report issued by the EPA that said they were dumping nearly, the city of Jackson was dumping nearly 45 million gallons of untreated wastewater into the environment around here. And actually, one local environmental watchdog, this woman named Abby Brahman, who's with the Pearl Riverkeeper organization, estimated that just the amount of sewage that poured into the environment and the waterways over like a very short period of time was enough to fill 100 Olympic-sized swimming pools with raw sewage. So this is the very same water that's seeping into people's drinking water and had been actually before this crisis in many ways. Like this is this is this has been going on for a while. Uh, I talked to some parents this morning about their situation. I think it's every is mm-hmm. everybody in a hole because it's not only one person's yeah. um, job. They're, the system is not correct. Yeah. They're not um, doing it correctly. And now everybody <laughs> has the permission to play the blame game because the city would say, well, if we have this such and such funds and if the mayor such and such, and then it's, it's everybody. The system mm-hmm. is not doing its part. Mm-hmm. I look at it as one like blaming people at this point when we're at a human rights violation because that's what it is Mm -hmm. not giving people fresh water is a human rights violation Mm -hmm. let's just name it for what it is Mm -hmm. now everybody's playing the blame game but people's lives are directly impacted with your decisions that you're making and the lackluster attitude that you have in this moment and to put some color on this Uh, The first woman who spoke is a parent of five, single parent of five who was at work when I met her. So she's a teacher. 
Mm-hmm. And she had to have half of her kids go with one relative and half of her kids go with another relative so that she could show up to work because the public schools are out. Now, just like COVID, a lot of the private schools are functioning today. I drove by three private schools just on my way here to do this recording, and those schools were all in session. And, and that's a frustration I heard from a bunch of parents that I talked to, which I'll, I'll, I'll put that aside for a second because I do think this is a little different than COVID because there literally isn't running water in schools. Like I was, uh, I visited one of my former schools today. They were doing a staff training because they couldn't have the kids in, in the building because three of the four buildings don't have running water at all. And I talked to the principal of the fourth school where they were holding the training, uh, this woman named Trisandria Hubbard, and she whispered to me, and said, hey, don't tell anybody, but the water pressure is starting to drop. So basically, I'm, I'm going to head over there after this recording. I bet you they're going to have to actually shut down for the day at some point because they, you know, people think about running water. They think about, all right, well, you can get bottled water, et cetera, but you need to go to the bathroom. Like there's all sorts of things that just can't happen in a city that doesn't have running water. And so when Peggy talks about this being a human rights crisis, I'm 100% with her. And I can I can get into the history here, and part of what I'm, I'm doing down here is trying to really get deep, not just into the past year, but what's been happening over the past decades in the city, which has seen dysfunction in and around the city of Jackson. And so some estimates I saw were saying that this could go on for weeks or potentially months. Do you have any sense of what the future looks like here and what's going to be done in the short term and the long term? Governor Tate Reeves said months. So if he's saying that, I tend to believe him. Now, the White House issued an emergency declaration which authorizes Department of Homeland Security, FEMA, and others to coordinate disaster relief. I just don't know enough about what they have. I'm going to go over to the, the treatment facilities and the wastewater facilities after this to see if I can talk to anybody. I'm sure it's going to be trying to, like, trying to get into Fort Knox. But you know, I, my sense is there just aren't huge water treatment machinery just sitting around. And this is part of the big problem with the city is in many ways, like Detroit, what you have is the de-urbanization of an old city. There's a lot of racial politics here that I'm that I'm trying to get to the bottom of in an organized way, right? To say like what has happened over the past few decades in Mississippi as it relates to race, municipal governance, et cetera. But you have this suburbanization where the outside counties, you know, have new infrastructure, people move there, it started with largely white population. And so the city of Jackson now is over 80% black. And in certain neighborhoods like South Jackson, where I was this morning is, is basically almost 100% black now, but it was used to be almost 100% white, right? So you have all this racial politics. Obviously, Mississippi has had a, a very dark and sad history of, of race relations. Like there's, you know, I drove past the Ross Barnett Aqueduct, uh, which just Google that name and ask yourself whether there should we should be naming public infrastructure after him. But essentially what's happened is people left the city. There just aren't enough taxpayers in the city to service an old aging infrastructure in a very large landmass. And so that's essentially what's been happening, compounded by definitely some incompetent government, both at the, uh, the city level and the state level, and a symptom of the polarized politics that we have, where we have an, a very right-wing state government. Like Ronnie, who I met also is a state representative. He's a Democratic, African-American state representative from South Jackson, but who tends to have really good relationships across the aisle. There's a lot of frustration with the current governor, even within the Republican Party, because he's like a new kind of Republican. And then there's a lot of frustration with the Democratic mayor 
of uh, Jackson because he's a new kind of Democrat. He's kind of like your more activist type uh, mayor. So you have two leaders responsible for this who could not be more different and who are, I would say, masters of the performative politics, but who I'm not sure have been taking this seriously over the past few years and few months. And now they're starting to bring that urgent tone to the public. And I think parents like Peggy are getting frustrated saying, look, now what? No more blame. Just get it done. To me, my thesis about Jackson is that the polarization that we see today is not just a reflection of social media, right? The social media is amplifying something that's deep and dark and scary in our country's history. And nowhere is this more true than Jackson, Mississippi, where the levels of distrust, racial animus, economic inequality, poor governance, partisan, you know, politicking and performance, and just general, I would say, neglect of just everyday people like Peggy is on display. And so to me, this is, there are lots of Jacksons out there. I've never seen anything quite as dramatic as this, but I think this is why we do what we do is just, you know, these people are frustrated. You put a mic in front of them and they just want to talk forever because nobody's listening to them. Yeah, well, it's it's a really tragic situation and it's good to see you down on the ground actually digging into it. And I'm sure that we'll, we'll hear more from you before your trip is over and after when you're back in New York as well. But I think we can move on to a slightly lighter topic of um, CNN and a lot of uh, kind of tumultuous activity that's been happening there. A couple months ago, we hit the disastrous failure of CNN Plus and now under new leadership under Chris Licht. Um, CNN appears to be trying to reclaim its 40-year-long identity as an unbiased, centrist news outlet. And he's lamented a loss of trust in the news media, the fact that they need to get back to center. In a memo to staff, he said, first and foremost, we should and will be advocates for truth. And so CNN has made some some pretty dramatic moves recently, the biggest headline being the cancellation of reliable sources after 30 years. And Brian Stelter has been let go in that process. Um, we've Pour also, one out. <laughs> <laughs> and we've seen kind of a general resistance of what Licht calls outrage porn. He's nixing some terms like the big lie that are seen as more partisan. Um, he's reserving breaking news for actually breaking news. He's also reached out to Republicans and is attempting to kind of extend some peace and say that they'll have a fair hearing if they come on the network and not just be criticized or yelled at. He met with Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy recently. Tim Scott and Dan Crenshaw have both been on the network recently, and he also hired a CBS morning show producer. So there's some rumors that he's eyeing the morning show at the moment, but there's quite a lot of changes that are taking place in the CNN world. So Ravi, what do you make of that? One thing I, I, I tend to try to be careful about is whenever people lose their jobs, and I even just made like a little joke about Stetler, I don't like to see anybody lose their jobs. I think it's 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 always sad because not only is it the, the the person usually who's on camera, who I think usually those people will do fine and they've made a lot of money, but the people underneath them. And so I feel for people who work in places like that. We got people at Lost Debate who come from CNN and, you know, it, it sucks to see people whose livelihoods are at risk because of stuff like this, but it has been a company that seems to have been slow to innovate both in terms of the, the delivery mechanisms, even how they portray content, but also the different types of voices that they have. And some of the tea leaves about what CNN is doing is like, oh, we're going to reach out to more Republicans. We're going to have, you know, and I think 
if if CNN had more Republicans and Fox had more Democrats, I still don't think that covers wide swaths of American society who don't really just. I don't think American society just wants crossfire. I think they want people. I want. I think they want nuance. They want people who have eclectic views. They want people who don't fit neatly in one box. I know this is almost like a a commercial for lost debate, but I don't think that. Like going back to the days of Crossfire is going to be the answer here either. I don't think that's his vision, though, because when what he's been emphasizing in his memos and meetings with staff is bringing panels to have a more informative tone than a fighting tone or just everyone agreeing. And also actually having a network where, you know, you can be on a on a news network and not just be the resident other or the person that's there to be shouted down and batted down. That would be refreshing. Like I, I'm not a huge CNN fan to be honest. But if this if this image that he has comes to fruition, I'm I'm all for it. I think it's hard to make it worse. So I, my my feeling here is let them try. And I would love you know I know that they've already started to get like get rid of some of the sort of I think excesses of the CNN of old the breaking news you know, flashing, everything's breaking news. Well, it's not, I don't even think it's the CNN of old, though. I think it's the CNN of post-2016. Of like most recent, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. the CNN of old is what they need to get back to, which was, like, breaking news was actually breaking news, and they had people on the ground in the most, like, critical situations. That's what that's what people are craving a return to, I think. And I, if they can do this successfully, I, I believe there is kind of middling market of people who are interested in some nuance and some constructive conversation in news media. Yeah, I was making a list of things I would get rid of, right? I, I also these huge panels, like, you know, when you're on this, you're watching election night, and there's like 15 people, and everybody gets like five seconds to say something, you know, the gray haired, you know, news anchor, like the wolf blitzers of the world, like some of them are like super compelling people like Anderson Cooper, Jake Tapper, but I just, I, I question how much of American society is looking for that versus a different style of delivery. Like we were just talking about the Zuckerberg Rogan interview. Like, is there any question that if Wolf Blitzer sat down with Mark Zuckerberg, would that be a more interesting conversation or Rogan in the more extended off the cuff, more informal interview is going to be better? I think most people are going to agree the latter is better. Yeah. But I mean, it's also a news network and they can't just transform into a 24-hour podcast network. So I think working within the confines of what they have going there is is kind of a necessity. I mean, obviously, alternative media is a new competitor. But in terms of what I personally would get rid of, I think it's the kind of sneering that we've seen quite a bit from from their anchors and some pretty blatant partisanship, which, you know, it used to be the centrist news organization where that wasn't quite as obvious. And MSNBC was kind of the the obvious left and Fox, the obvious right. But then in recent years, we've seen things like this Don Lemon clip that I pulled that I think pretty much exemplifies why a lot of Republicans are alienated from the program. Donald Trump's a smart one in there. Oh, y'all, y'all, y'all elitists are dumb. <laughs> you, you elitists with your geography and your maps and your spelling, even though my path and you're reading. <laughs> yeah, you're reading, you know, your geography, knowing other countries. Sipping your latte. <laughs> All those lines on the map. <laughs> <laughs> Only them elitists know where Ukraine is. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. But by, but by Ukraine. Ukraine. Oh my God. <laughs> so for people listening, that's Don Lemon uh, laughing along as two of his panelist guests are disparaging half the country who voted for Trump as ignorant and illiterate and unable to read a map 
And I think that's kind of the tone that has alienated people. Um, Their viewership's down 27% over the past year while Fox is up. And they have higher distrust ratings among Republicans than the New York Times, the Washington Post, or MSNBC. You've heard me on this spiel before. I I often wonder what relevance CNN and MSNBC have anymore when they're drawing an average of 639,000 people in primetime this quarter compared to 11 million listeners that The Rogan Show reportedly has. And even if you go to Ben Shapiro's YouTube page alone, just YouTube, his podcast probably many multiples of this, he gets 851,000 views on average per video. So this alternative media to me is becoming the quote unquote mainstream media anyway. And so I wonder like 10 years from now, are we going to even be talking about the, you know, the CNNs of the world, the MSNBCs of the world, or are they going to be, you know, like the the sort of niche publications that still matter a little bit, like the daily, the New York Daily News, for example, that are like things that people still read, but they're not dominating the discussion. You know, it's not the Jimmy Breslin days of old, but there are other new forms of media that most of the people are, you know, interacting with on a daily basis. Well, and I think that there are many people who still kind of are nostalgic for a day where you could turn on the news and not be bombarded with opinions. I might get cable if that was the case. Well, all right. Uh, Should we talk about the great state of Pennsylvania? Yes. So, Ravi, you've been on the road quite a bit this week. And uh, before you were in Jackson, you were in Pennsylvania on the ground checking out uh, what's going on with the midterms there. Right now we have the Senate race between Fetterman and Dr. Oz and the governor race between Shapiro and Mastriano. Um, Both of them seem to be leaning Democratic, but it's still a toss up with 80 days to go. And so, Ravi, what was the sense that you got on the ground there, the voter sentiment, what was going on? Yeah, I think there are a few big takeaways. Uh, and Lehigh County is a good place to go because it and some of its surrounding counties are the bellwethers for Pennsylvania. They largely dictate, especially some of these sub areas of the county, are usually reflective of where the statewide results go. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's complicated because Allentown is pretty blue, but the surrounding counties are pretty red. So we, our team, and shout out to Ava and Wes on our team, Ava Maldonado and Wes Parnell, they they were down there longer than I was. And they talked to a ton of voters and were able to get me in front of a bunch of them. And I, I leaned more Republican in the people I spent time with just because I come from Democratic politics. So I felt like that would be more eye-opening to me. And I came away with a couple of big takeaways that dovetail with the data that's coming out of the state right now. And I'll start with this conversation I had with the Lehigh County GOP chair. And he said a number of interesting things. One thing was we, we had an extended conversation about absentee ballots and about uh, in, election integrity, et cetera. And after a certain point, I asked him, hey, how much of your time are you spending on this versus like working towards the next election and turning out the vote and persuading voters, et cetera. And he was pretty candid with me. I, I find myself spending probably 30 or 40% of the time dealing with um, uh, complaints about the election process. Got it. And uh, having to follow up on things like that. He seemed almost exhausted by it all, even as he was tr- trying to pitch me on issues that he sees within the election process. And to me, uh, as somebody who was a former Democratic operative, I, I would say that a lot of the people I used to work with that's precisely, you know, the people on the left, that's precisely what they want to hear. They want to hear that the GOP is really caught up in looking back as opposed to looking forward. 
And so one thing in our conversations behind the scenes that I heard from you, Ravi, is that people seem kind of frustrated with the choices in front of them, period, in terms of voters themselves. Is that the case? Yeah, I would say. And and how much of this is new? You know, I remember like the the there was the Coke Pepsi analogy about Gore versus Bush. Right. So there was mm-hmm. I think like as long as I've been in politics, there are people who didn't like their choices. Well, these are particularly colorful choices right now. I mean, Dr. Oz is an example of that with his crudite. Right. I mean, this is there is a difference between pe- how people are viewing the gubernatorial race versus the Senate race. So I think when people look at the gubernatorial race, what's interesting to me is that the current attorney general Shapiro, even though if you look at the polls, if you look at Fetterman versus Oz and then Shapiro versus Mastriano, Fetterman is actually doing better than Shapiro. They're both up in the averages, right? And we can take polls for what they are. I know that polls have been wildly underrepresented Republicans, a lot of polls over the past few cycles, but at least according to the polls that we're seeing, including Republican polls, Fetterman is plus 8.1 in the 538 average. Shapiro is plus 7.3. So you'd think based on the data, that when you talk to voters, they would be way more bullish on Fetterman than they are on Shapiro. But that's not what I'm hearing from voters. I'm hearing from voters on the ground in Pennsylvania, lots of great things people have to say about Shapiro, including I had dinner the first night I was there with two GOP activists who had literally nothing good to say about Democrats uh, the whole time I was talking to them. But one of them admitted that he likes Shapiro because his office does a lot of business with Shapiro and a lot of interactions with Shapiro and that the Shapiro's office is very responsive. I asked the Lehigh County GOP chair about this too, and he seemed to say, all right, Shapiro is just a way more deft operator, hasn't really leaned into some of the more extreme left positions, and has basically the implication being that Shapiro is going to be a lot harder to beat. But when you ask people about Fetterman versus Oz, the data is showing up, so people are saying they like Fetterman more than Oz, and they have a lot of negative things to say about Oz, uh, which I'll get to. But like you're like what you alluded to, there, I wouldn't say that they're like gung ho. A lot of the people we talk to about Fetterman either, and in general, people are way more complicated about their views. Interesting, and I would say that that's kind of almost similar to the state as a whole because. Although Trump won in 2016, he was the first Republican since George H.W. Bush to Biden won by a narrow margin in 2020. But even when the state has been gone blue for the president, they've had one, if not two Republicans in the Senate. And so I think it's reflective of the fact that like the reason that we zoom in and hone in on Pennsylvania is because that nuance and that diversity of opinion comes through there. And it's kind of a bellwether for the the country more generally. But um, just to go through some stats of how voters are feeling on the ground, there's a 39% approval rating for Biden. 44.5% of voters say the economy is their priority. Number two is abortion access with 14.3%, which might be why uh, things are swinging more democratic in the past couple months. And crime and healthcare are both lagging behind abortion as Mm. the third and fourth uh, most important issue. So does that seem to square with what you're seeing on the ground there, Ravi? You don't hear people talk about either Trump or Biden that much uh, in the state. And I think part of it's because of these colorful characters who are at the top of ticket, right? And I think that's one of the things that I think is to Shapiro's advantage is that if you look at Fetterman, Oz, and Mastriano, they are distinct people where Shapiro is kind of like a, he's a technocrat, you know? And so people just don't know a lot about him. They don't have a lot to say about him. And I think that's working to his advantage because I think what I'm hearing from people 
is they don't want drama. They might not love Biden, but if you then take it to the point where you're like, hey, let's impeach the guy, let's lock him up, or you start getting into that kind of rhetoric, they don't want any of that, right? They just want their government to work, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things I was picking up on. Second was I also had a chance to sit down with the, the Democratic chair, and there are two interesting things that are going on here. One is that the Republican primaries were bloodbaths. So when I talked to the Democratic chair, she mentioned this thing called Republicans for Shapiro, which this Republican former congressman named Charlie Dent started. Uh, that's causing a lot of havoc for the Republicans. When I mentioned that also to the Republican chair, he mentioned that as an obstacle for them is that there actually is a lot of bad blood from the primaries. So that's one dynamic. I would say another dynamic which kind of cuts the other way is we did spend a lot of time talking to Latino voters and Hispanic voters. And I would say that there is a shift that we're seeing. It's definitely showing up in the data. But when you talk to voters, there are a lot more conservative Hispanic voters than I think a lot of people realize. And the when I asked the Democratic Party chair about it. The Latinos that, that are going conservative, they all out that they are small business owners, that they came through immigration legally, so should everybody else. And what's your, does the party you think have a message to win those people back? Or is it, or is it from your perspective, a lost cause? I think, I think they're lies. I think they're buying into their message of, of small business tax cuts and they're, they're buying into it. I really think that's all it is. She did not have a great answer for it. She didn't really have a handle on what's going on or a solution for it. And so I think that may not come into play in this election, but I think it certainly could in the years to come. And I think this is something that might not be just specific to Pennsylvania. Well, we're still 80 days out, so we'll continue to watch how these elections pan out and follow the polls and keep you updated. But in the meantime, we have an Atlantic piece about veganism and how it's not necessarily the the planet-saving fix that our world can make. It argues that a wholly vegan agricultural system actually could be harmful and that the the real crux of our issue with climate change is fossil fuels and that food alone is not going to save us. So, Ravi, what did you make of this article? Yeah, so we're talking about Bob Holmes had a piece in The Atlantic about this. And I think that I forget what the headline was, but it was something that overstates this article for sure. And, you know, one of the things uh, you and I both, I think, are generally uh, animal rights people. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I'm a... I've been various things in my life, pescatarian, vegan, yada, yada, and mostly for animal rights reasons, but I do buy into the uh, the environmental argument as well. And there's a lot of resentment towards vegans. <laughs> some, of, some of that I think is warranted just some of the way that sometimes the way that we go about lecturing people, but mm-hmm. people love to throw these types of articles in our faces. And I would say this yeah. article to me, Ricky, has some major flaws. Yeah, actually. So I've been a pescatarian for like almost half my life now at this point. And I was when I was on Bill Maher a couple of weeks ago, I was with Piers Morgan, who has said that vegan sausage rolls are a threat to democracy. So we had a little back and forth about that. But um, yeah, so for me, I, I have quite a few issues with this argument. Um, I, I mean, it hinges on the idea that we'll have an idealized meat and dairy production system and that that's more yeah. sustainable than our modern vegan diet. And um, it assumes that the vegan diet will stay static or our meat alternatives will kind of continue to be what they are. 
And I think that there's there's so much room for growth and innovation that we can't even really fathom in terms of lab-grown meat, in terms of how we produce alternative meat and dairy products, um, unforeseen innovations. Like, you know, like a couple decades ago, we couldn't even imagine what GMOs have brought to the world in terms of food production capacity. So to me, I'm not really satisfied with this idea because I don't really think that there's anyone who, or maybe there are like militant vegans who are saying we can all change our diet and everyone has to do it and it'll make everything right. better environmentally. But you know, it's, I, I'm also in the camp of, I do it for animals more so than the environment, but the environment thing doesn't hurt. Um, I do think I'm one drop in a teeny little bucket. So I'm, I'm yeah. not, I'm not going to try to make some like outsized argument that I'm saving the world by doing it, but I think it's a mistake to say like, oh, let's just throw out the entire concept because it's not going to save us and and we need right. to address fossil fuels. Like to me, that's just not satisfying and it assumes a lack of innovation in one area and an excess of an innovation in another. Well, I think also the one drop in a bucket thing that I think people throw in the face of vegans, well, that's true of anything. Like you don't go around and throw mm -hmm. trash on the street because you're just one person or it doesn't stop you from giving money to charity, even though your $1 might not be the thing that, that tips things in the balance. I think we we often operate from the principle that you try to act in a way that if everybody else did it, society would be better, right? Otherwise, everybody would just be selfish, right? And I think of that with veganism, and I'm with you that- I don't believe in a world where it's it's even feasible to convince a sizable majority of people to become vegans. I'm of the sort of Jonathan Safran four, we are the weather argument of if people ate less, so if we said, all right, just cut one meal out a day or two or you know, like a certain percentage reduction and think about getting it ethically sourced, et cetera, that that percentage reduction would alleviate a lot of harm and potentially help the environment. And the numbers here are pretty staggering on the environmental front. Livestock accounts for 14.5% of greenhouse gas emissions globally. Gram for gram, beef producers, the beef produces roughly eight times more greenhouse gas emissions uh, than farmed fish or poultry, 12 times more than eggs, 25 times more than tofu. These are all stats that are actually in this article, and there are mm -hmm. more, right? The author then says, well... That's all true. And then goes through this convoluted series of steps to say, well, there's this idealized version of meat eating that would include us eating less meat in developed countries. So even if you read the fine print of this article, it's still saying that people who are listening to this podcast would eat less meat, that they eat healthier, so more vegetables, fewer refined grains, because if they're replacing meat with refined grains, that has other environmental issues, that we build mm -hmm. a system to convert food waste from cities to feed in the countries so that we're actually taking the food waste and somehow like transporting it to the country so that we could use that as fertilizer. Um, and where we completely redesign the way that we raise animals in ways that our current capitalist system that has factory farms doesn't incentivize. You put that all together and that's the world that they're saying could conceivably be better for the environment than the one we're in right now. And I'm saying that yeah. There's just five too many caveats there to believe that this is a world that's even possible. And it's also true that there are a ton of issues with how we create um, 
like meat alternative products right now that are inefficient, that use a lot of land, um, that can kill smaller animals in the process. There's There are a million different critiques, but he's holding up that modern model with its flaws against an idealized model, which to me just isn't fair because I think the room for innovation, even just in the past decade, the the quality of, of artificial meat has gone through the roof and we're getting closer and closer to viable lab-grown alternatives. But just to put some figures on on how much resources are required to make some, some typical animal products, it takes 638 gallons of water to make one gallon of milk and 2,400 gallons of water to make one pound of beef. So if we think about resource allocation, it's it's just much more sustainable to to have people be the primary consumers of as much of their product and produce as they possibly can be if we want to preserve resources. But I also would say, for me, it's this argument's also completely missing the animal ethics point, which I know is right. not what he's talking about here. I know he's talking about sustainability, but... The reality is there's a survey of more than 12,000 vegans that um, an Australian group did. And they asked people, are you doing it for the animals, for your health, or for the environment? 68.1% said animals, 17.4% said health, and 9.7% said environment. So mm-hmm. what's motivating people to change their lives so fundamentally is animal rights predominantly, which I think is a great thing. And then we have this kind of secondhand positive benefit that they're also being more sustainable in the process. So I think there's a chance that we can move culture more towards gearing towards animal rights and then also the environmental benefits as as like a byproduct of that. And to yeah. me, this argument completely misses that possibility as well. And there was a there's another piece of data to layer into this, just how staggering this issue is. In 2016, there was a study published in Science and they said that if we combine pastures used for grazing with land used to grow crops for animal feed, then livestock accounts for 77% of global farming land. And it takes up, uh, and it only produces 18% of the world's calories and 37% of total protein. So we're talking about 77% of land, 18% of calories, 37% of protein. So, I mean, to me, that's open and shut case. Like, this is not good for the environment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's take it home. Uh, I want to shout out all the people in both Pennsylvania and in Mississippi who've been so accommodating to us. You know, shout out to Republic staff. Trey Vernacci, you know, my operations director down here was had COVID this morning and was still making calls, uh, helping to find families uh, for us to talk to. Uh, you know, the folks over at New Horizon were handing out water this morning and still uh, giving us access, talking about what's going on down here. The Hood family who's hosting us right now, even as water was coming through their ceiling, they let us do the podcast here and they've been wonderful mm-hmm. in helping to revitalize Jackson and then all the people, whether it's the Lehigh County, Republicans, Democrats, average voters who allowed us to to stop by and talk to them. We want to do more of this. Listener, if you like this sort of on the ground approach or you hate it, let us know. And obviously go there wherever you get your podcasts. Give us those five-star ratings. Talk about what you love about the show. And uh, big update, we will not be doing a Tuesday show because we have a long weekend and we have a staff retreat on Tuesday where we're going to plan out our midterm coverage and more. And so we will be back on Thursday. And uh, just you know, subscribe wherever you get our podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube show. Hit that like button. And we'll uh, see you Thursday.